five in the eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new? Hello and a very warm welcome to Five in the Eye, the weekly review show on Colourful Radio that examines five stories that have caught our eye over the past week. This is Phil Woodford in London and we're on episode 0317. Michael, that's episode 0317. Unbelievable. Well, it is believable. It's a prime number, a prime number edition. Very well spotted, Phil. This is me, Michael O'Hajura, joining the show via Zoom this week and revealing that we have a very special guest with us here guest with us an old friend of mine it's a very old friend of mine it's tony warner hi there tony hello michael hello phil it's good to be here on five in the eye and i can reveal our top story this week is the death of black historian renuko rashidi so we're going to discuss um his ideas and some of his legacy as well five in the eye for story number two it's the war of words that's blown up over the role of the royal national lifeboat institute the rnli in rescuing refugees who are in trouble at sea. People continue to head towards the UK in boats out of desperation, but are met with hostility at a time when NATO's exit from Afghanistan looks set to herald a further humanitarian crisis. Um, And what's story number three? Well, Bigby Jones, the former boss of the CBI, criticised former footballer and Olympic presenter Alex Scott for the way she pronounces her words. She drops her G's and stuff. It sparked a furious backlash. For our fourth story, we're going glamping. Holidaymakers shelled out a fortune for what they were told was going to be a very posh campsite, but were horrified to find they were sharing basic facilities with other people. I love that story, I love it. (laughs) And finally this week, it's the remarkable new tourist attraction that's heading for Stratford in East London. A gigantic glowing orb that's the size of Big Ben. Now that's one step for the mound. That's one step up from the mound of Marble Arch, and that's this week's Five in the Eye. Five in the Eye. We're going to kick off this week by reviewing uh, the life and times of uh, Ronaldo R- Rashidi. Some of you may know him, maybe some of you don't know him, but for me, he's a, he was one of the greatest black historians we've ever had. A two giants. Well, he was a lecturer, an anthropologist, author, scholar, historian, essayist. He's even a poet. And he's brought black history to life. And he's took, going back to basics in terms of Kemet and Egypt. And, he's, and for me, he's, he's made the connection in terms of black people started history. We are history. We're so often we've been written out of history. You know, they invented this thing called the Negro who has no history has no past, has no country. And, the, and white historians have denied us our, our past and have denied us our history, even to this day. You know, in the, the 60s, Hugh Trevor Oprah was saying, Africa has no history. And we had um, Sarkozy in the, in, the, well, in, in the 80s saying, Africa needs to have a history. But Ronaldo gave us a history and, and made, us to, made us to walk tall. Having said all that, I didn't agree with all that he said. But, you know... I think it was really important. And I'm, I'm so pleased to have t- Tony Warner from Black History Walks on the show this week. And I, I want to get his feedback on, 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 on how he thought, how he considered Renoka. R- R- what, 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 what's your view on Renoka, R- um, Tony? Well, one of the things that he did is he made it accessible because what he would do, he would travel the world. He'd do his own research. But when he went to places like Vietnam or Cambodia or these kind of you know, unusual places, he would photograph 
physical evidence that when it comes to statues and buildings, but also he'd take pictures of the people who are there. And then he'd come to London or France or America, etc., and he'd do a presentation using the images he'd taken. So he had like thousands, tens of thousands of images. So when he talks about the black presence in Vietnam, when he talks about how when the um, uh, Vietnam War was on, you had black American soldiers going up in the middle of nowhere, in the bush, so to speak, and coming across black people who looked just like them, he had pictures to prove it to show. So that was really um, impactful and quite instructive and really amazing to actually see this documented physical evidence of this black presence all over the world going back hundreds of thousands, sorry, thousands of years. And he would make it, you know, really interesting and engaging. And then, of course, you could buy the books as well. So when he came to London, we would go and check out his um, uh, lectures. And, you know, actually, he, he actually did one of our walks back in 2013. He okay. Wow. He stayed at the um, Kensington Hilton um, in there somewhere in um, South Kensington. And we did a coach tour and a walking tour for him in 2013. And I remember him saying he didn't like walking. So he, he didn't actually do the walk himself. He went <laughs> to the British Museum with the rest of the guys. And then I took about, um, I don't know how many people it was on an actual walking tour. So he made uh, the history accessible. He was able to prove it with these photographs, which he took himself. And that was one of the biggest differences to him and other black historians. I had the pleasure of, of, of going on his, his uh, British Museum tours. And he re really engaging and really making connections as he as he moved through pieces in terms of he positioned history and he debunked the idea that the history or western history starts with the greeks and moves forward and the greeks kind of invented themselves yeah. and he talks about the egyptians the phoenicians the the cretans the the, the Mayans. Th these were people before the greeks and he shows that we were there, the black africans and he made a very interesting comment to me which i was still trying to get my head around that because many Egyptians today don't see themselves as Africans. But mm. he argues they're invaders. Well, they are. <laughs> they're invaders. So, and he really, he really gives you thoughts, thoughts to think about, profound thoughts in terms of the black presence. You know, we're not just peripheral to history. We are history. The other thing about Renoka is that he was like um, a physical link between his generation of African scholars and the old boys like um, Van Sertman, John G. Jackson, because yeah, yeah. he'd actually worked with those guys. Yeah, yeah. And that was another amazing part of his story because he could be talking about his research in Southeast Asia and the black presence there. And then he could say, well, when I was hanging out with Van Sertman, I'm like, what? You knew what? Van Sertman? Exactly, exactly. Like, and he, he could then tell you stories about Van Sertman, about John G. Jackson, and share their, their work anew via his um, experiences. And also it was just a, a really like I say, an inspirational um, event to have him speaking about these legends like Ivan Vassarin was really cool, pretty cool. Phil, I'm, I'm very much aware that we're, that we're going on here, you know, in terms of loading this man up. But come on, Phil, you, you obviously have a view on, uh, on, on the man. I was taught history at school and I studied it to quite a high level. But, you know, it's English history. History, it's white history, it's European history. And I know, Tony, you're kind of um, very involved in curriculum, aren't you, in schools? And, yeah, I'm not, yeah. um, and, and you know, how do you feel that um, the, 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 the kind of work of uh, great historians um, and scholars like Rashidi would uh, influence maybe the way that we teach young generations of uh, black kids about their history or educate white people about black history today? 
I, I think it would literally blow their minds, they'd freak out, they'd be on the floor thinking, where, where has all this information been for the last 1,500 years or so? So it'd be very uh, impactful. It would uh, definitely change people's viewpoints. I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon, um, but if it was to be included in the curriculum, it would literally blow people's minds. We're seeing that now a little bit in America with this, um, the way that they're trying to rewrite history. When I say they, well, they, the Republicans, the so-called the right wing, are anti this 1619 project, which talks about the, I would say, the real history of America. They don't like that because they see it as divisive. And they're looking to find their own history called 1776. Or equally, this, um, this, uh, the, uh, this, um, uh, it's called it this black cultural, uh, it's gone for me. What, what's the word? The, um, Critical race theory. Yes, thank you. Critical race theory. They're saying that this is divisive, and they've not done their homework. They're speaking from a pure ignorance. But sadly, I see it's happening over here, that, that, that the right wing are anti the way we're looking at history. They, don't, they, want to, they have a fixed view of history. So when we, when we to their mind, rewrite the, uh, the curriculum, they, they, they see this as wrong. Whereas all that we're doing is we're putting ourselves back in the, back into history. Yeah, so I think that's like, um, they use critical race theory as like a code word to include any aspect of black history or telling the truth about white history, so to speak. So rather than actually understand what CRT is all about, they just kind of mislabel it and then they apply it to anything to do with kind of addressing the, the flaws and the gaps and the, the missing parts of British history. So you can't talk about the fact that the British were the major slave traders. You can't talk about the fact they made massive amounts of money from slavery. You can't talk about the black people in World War One or two because that would then be racist, which is bizarre. Exactly. But that is a strategy people are coming up with. And though they kind of twist the narrative, you know, it's racist to talk about race and to yeah. put it into perspective. Yeah, just you know, a sewage report. And, and this idea of talking about white privilege—it's divisive. You know, right? But it's not right. It's racist to talk about it. So look, I, I'm very much aware of time, Tonya, but I'd just like to get your, your, your thoughts on, on can you see it, his death or the, the, the sad death of Rashidi making a difference in some way in terms of moving, m- moving us forward? In- I'm not sure about that because normally if someone dies, then there's an increase in interest or, or for their work for you know a month or two and then it kind of goes back to normal. So I'm not sure that his passing will then lead to a rejuvenation of interest in black history. It might turn on a few people, but I can't see it having a lasting effect, uh, not, not at the moment. Anyway. I, I one, thing, that, one thing I'm conscious of is, you know, I was watching um, I was watching videos of Rashidi in advance of the show to inform myself. Um, and um, he, he was very keen on his. You were talking about his connection, Tony, to the generation that came before him. But he seemed very keen on reaching out to the generation beyond him as well. And he was giving interviews to, to, to younger people. He he was actually a very kind of charismatic um guy in terms of pres- presenting and so on and so undoubtedly that's a loss isn't it because uh, you can't replace that instantly he had like seventy thousand followers in his facebook page so i'm, I'm thinking what's gonna happen to them now who's gonna take up the reins uh, I, I was gonna i was i was hoping you'd say that it would be you tony that would that, that, and you're doing it you're doing it anyway with your black history walks the things that you that, that robin walker's doing the legacy he's passed on he's passed that down to to dare i say even myself i've got some sense of sense of, of what he means what he's brought to black history so although to your point it's not gonna it's not gonna make headlines in the in the guardian or the times or whatever 
but he's given us tools and ideas and views as, yeah. to help us move it forward and to speak with confidence about the black presence in history as a, as a thing that goes back before history. Yeah, before we can history. certainly use his work to inform the people and to, to reference it in the future. Five in the eye. Story number two this week is um, about the RNLI who have come under attack for what is basically doing their job, which is rescuing people who are in grave danger at sea. Now, who would possibly condemn them for this? It would be, of course, right-wing commentators who um, dislike the idea of anyone arriving in the UK, don't want to be hospitable to refugees, um, and they see the RNLI as almost facilitating, uh, as they would put it, the the trafficking of people from continental Europe into the UK. Um, This has become an issue discussed on uh, TV, on social media, and so on. We, we thought we ought to air it here on Five five in the Eye too. But there's a, there's a wider context as well that we wanted to touch upon because uh, NATO has made the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. Joe Biden led the way, but the UK also coming out and other countries too. And this has been a signal to the Taliban that maybe this is an opportunity for them to advance. And there are many people in Afghanistan now incredibly worried about their safety, the fears of a of a harsh uh, fundamentalist regime coming back. And this will surely drive further um, uh, waves of, of migration um, out of Afghanistan, along the routes through through Turkey and into Europe and, and, and so on. So I'm um, just interested in, in your perspective on this, Tony. You were the one who first kind of raised this story with us. The RNLI, they're surely just doing their job, aren't they? Absolutely. And what is amazing about it is that you can be out there rescuing people from death and you bring those people to shore and you have other, other people saying, you should have let them die out there. Yes, That's I'm how inhumane. Yeah, I was shocked to read that. They were, they were, they were swearing at the, the RNLI for bringing these people up. And they were, they were telling these people to go go away in no unpleasant terms. Yeah, to just drown. I mean, and that is the end result of, you know, Preeti Patel's policy. That's in effect what happened is that you have people who are so racist they have to let people die rather than allow them to come to England. And that, that's what happens when you have that kind of hostile uh, environment policy. Um, but it also links into uh, a long history of racism against people from other countries when they come to be in, in effect refugees. Because if you, if you go back to World War II, there was opposition to Jewish refugees mm. in this country. It's not often talked about or referred to when we talk about World War II and look back on the history there. We talk about how Britain stood alone and stood against the Nazi set, but they don't talk about how they were actually rejecting Jewish refugees who were then, in the, indeed, some of them did die. No, no, you're right. And it, it, it's sad that the, the, there seems to be, in the, the mainstream media, oh, MSM, I'm using that term. That's a derogatory expression. We, we don't use that term on Exactly. There, there, are, there are many people in the press who don't seem to have an empathy. And this Farage on GB News seems to have zero empathy when, when he talks about them, you know, them, what, what did he call the RNLI? Was it migrant taxis? You know, outrageous. It, it's just, I mean, you know, it's, uh, Farage is, is, is a truly horrible little man who uh, does everything he can to stoke uh, hatred and division. And um, his sole raised 
raison d'etre, in my view, is to create a climate in which uh, one group of people is pitted against another at, at any point in time. It's that kind of uh, it, it's, it's that kind of divisive atmosphere that his politics thrive in. And unfortunately, he's got a media platform to do it. I mean, I, I do think the country is pretty split on this issue. I mean, I don't think that um, either Farage represents true public sentiment, but equally probably not that some of the more liberal views that we see on social media fully representing public sentiment either. Would you agree, Michael, that perhaps British public opinion is 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 kind of lost somewhere in the middle of all this. Exactly, I, I think we're split. It, it, it's, it's not it's not a kind of a black and white thing. If you forgive the pun, it is more nuanced. But nevertheless, there's there's a significant number of people, and I would I would put it as a, not not a great majority, but a majority of people are sympathetic. You know, there, there's a, there's a poem, there's a poem, an refugee poem, and I'm just going to read you a line from it. And think about this. It says it says you have to understand. No one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land, unless the water is safer than the land. And that requires some understanding, some compassion. And that's why I was shocked to see those people who were attacking, verbally attacking the RNLI and the, and the refugees as they came, as they came off the, uh, the boat. And the thing is, Michael, there's a, another kind of a hidden link between the RNLI, this racist hostility, and indeed slavery and art, because the RNLI, the three of their two of their three main founders, so William Hillary and George Hibbert, were both directly involved in slavery. So William Hillary inherited money from a slave plantation, and wow. George George Hibbert owned about nine hundred enslaved Africans, and those are two of the three main founders that set up the original. RNLI, when it's called, it had a different name, but that's what was in 1824. They were called the Preservation of Life at Sea, something like that. But that's where the RNLI was founded with money from two slave traders. And George Hibbert owned 305 Rembrandts, Michael, 305 Rembrandts in Illinois, and, and, and uh, uh, um, Rubens. Tony, so that's kind of what we're talking about. You're so on the money there in terms of the cognitive dissidence of slavery, in terms of Abroad, they were brutal slavers, but at home, they were philanthropists. And that, that, that dichotomy, which we're still bringing out today, you know, with, with the, um, the statue in um, Bristol, mm. you know, in terms of the, he was a philanthropist in Bristol, but he was a slaver on the high seas that killed thousands of Africans, you know. And, and that's something that we need to, I'm going to say, work out, understand, acknowledge. But too often we don't see the other side. We just see That's the philanthropist not, not side. To. Not referred to at all. So they've made a lot of money from human rights abuses, millions of pounds or dollars, or whatever, and then they give two percent of that to charity. And then that's all we hear about the charitable aspect, as opposed to where it's discussed when we came from the first place. Exactly. So, so 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 when you hear Farage saying, you know, making these derogatory comments about the RNLI, he just doesn't understand. He's not done his homework. And just, just one last point on this. Just forget refugees, the RNLI, and life at sea. There's an unwritten code among seafarers that you rescue. You know, if you're at sea, you know, you've, the May Day comes out, you rescue. Yeah. You don't say, oh, are they black, white, Jewish, 
Have they paid their taxes? That's not also the- these guys. These guys going out on the boats for the RNLI. They're volunteers, and they uh, and, and they are risking their own lives to save other people's lives. I mean, the idea that we we should be insulting them um, and and you know dismissing them is is outrageous. I mean, Farage one day may be relying on these people, Thank you. Um, and uh, he, he should think very carefully before he speaks. And after that point about um, the interpreters who were from Afghanistan have now been allowed entry to Britain, it reminds you of the Gurkhas about 15 years ago yeah. when the Gurkhas could not get residence here and it was Joanna Lemley had a campaign and now they're allowed to live here after serving the British Army for 30 odd years. It shows you again this this latent streak of racism that's in... Yeah, I mean, the Gurkhas, the Gurkhas have been abominably treated. Uh, likewise, these interpreters, some of whom were dismissed for very minor things, and that's disqualified them from, from coming to the UK. I mean, I do I do very much worry. This is a discussion for another day. We haven't got the time today, but I do worry that um, whilst I understand the reasons why the UK and the US have decided to pull out of Afghanistan, uh, it's creating a void which is going to cause an enormous but amount of fit, suffering Phil, to other people. You've sawn the money there in terms of Afghans on the verge of being a failed state. And then people have got nowhere else to go but to, to, to flee the country. And then there's the, then more refugees, more people on, on, on the shores of the, the, the channel wanting to come over to Britain. So this is, uh, you know, that, that withdrawal. <sighs> One last point from my side, just, just an emotional side. All those lives that were lost, those British soldiers that were lost, for what? For what? You know, it's just it just seems outrageous that they should pull out like that. Live in the eye. Story number three this week is about uh, discrimination. Discrimination. And, and discrimination on, on two forms. One, and I was just shocked when I read this. This is Bristol Western Hospital are asking BMA, the Black and Minority and Ethnic People, to have Western names. And we're not talking about calling themselves Tex or the, or the Fresno Kid. We're talking about calling yourself, if, if, if you're, um, if you're the, the Javed, we want to call you David. You know, we want to make it easy. Like, or even, I, I, I was minded when I was coming up as a salesperson, they said you should change your name Okajuru. We should make that O'Hara. Oh, seriously? They yeah. said that to you? Yeah, so, so no, I kept my name. And I'll, I'll, someday I'll tell you what I did in, in, in response to it. But, you know, this idea of um, what, what, what maddened me about this, this is in a hospital where, where you've got no end of technical Latin words that, I, that no one can pronounce. Yeah, because you've got a foreign name. Oh, you've got, you've got to change that. And then when you link that to that, that Digby Jones, or can I say Lord Digby Jones? Speaking out against the way uh, Alex Scott. Now, forgive me, I'd never heard of Alex Scott. You know, shame on mm. me. Which is Michael, famous. honestly. I know, I know, I'm, I'm sorry, but she's a famous footballer, played for Arsenal, played for England. She's a commentator on the telly. She's a young black girl. And, you know, <laughs> you know she, when, I looked, when I saw that, I thought, what the, you know, I was surprised <laughs> because I'm not used to that kind of commentary. You know, used to go old white blokes. And then you got this young, fresh black girl speaking sense mm-hmm. or talking sense don't to me like but she's talking sense and then for this digby that this off oh, again forgive me the stale pale white bloke digby telling her swimming and fishing that's wrong you're not talking proper come on let me jump in on the um the the, the um the names aspect because 
I always make this comparison. When it comes to art and culture, people here have no problem pronouncing Rachmaninoff, Tchaikovsky, Vladivostok, <laughs> you know, Vivaldi. You know, and they can even spell it too, you know. When it comes to Ohojuru or Babatunde or Lufemi, oh, I can't, it's too difficult. I can't handle it. So it just shows, again, this kind of inherent racism that you're going to say, I can quite happily pronounce Schwarzenegger and, you know, Tchaikovsky and spell it even, but it's too difficult to say Olufemi. That just shows you what's going to be with well, I do. I mean, I know that uh, when my grandmother came over to the UK uh, as a Jewish immigrant, uh, the, her family changed their name uh, from Aronson to Harrison because of wow. anti-Jewish racism at the time. Um, you know, and that's a really sad reflection of the way that the, uh, the the way that society the way that society was. But that was their conscious choice. It wasn't anyone telling them uh, to do it. Um, and um, you know, I, I I think it's outrageous what this uh, th this trust has been telling people um, in in terms of their names. With uh, with regards to 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 Alex Scott, um, you know, I I really like hearing people with. Uh, different accents, different backgrounds. I mean, this is what makes life interesting, different perspectives, different commentary. What, you know, and it's not as if, um, you know, uh, we, 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 all footballers, for goodness sake, uh, speak with um, po po posh accents. I mean, why is Alex Scott being picked out? Is it because she's young and she's female and she's black? I don't know. Phil, yeah. what's happening here? The, the BBC is... Oh. Anytime they make change, when they introduce women commentators, what's going on here? We, we, I remember when, when they introduced William Pickles. Now, you, Tony, you would not know William Pickles. Uh, Phil, I don't think you don't even know William Pickles. Well, he was a he was a northern commentator, and he said "good night." I can't even say it, the northern accent, and there was outrage because they were used to Alvin Liddell ripple testing from the from the Crystal Palace that that crisp English perceived accent. And so here's someone talking with a northern accent. Well, I'm going to be my Liverpool accent. This is outrageous. So it, it's Digby Jones is in a long line of, of angry, can I use the word white people at all? I'm, I'm being racist there. But there's a certain stream of people who want, who want, want who essentialize the BBC in terms of what they expect, the, the voices and the people they see. When we've moved on now, we've moved yeah, on. Sure. We're much more diverse. And, you know, we've a got... Good, good point I didn't think about is that with regard to um, male and female um, anchors, because I've heard Ian Wright commentate, I've heard Gary Lineker commentate, I, I've heard even other people commentate, and they, they are how kind of, you know, they have their own accents, but I, I didn't see them being criticised for the way they spoke. But when this young black woman comes on, all of a sudden yeah. she's like, there's an issue I, for a drop of riches. That's a great point, that Tony, in terms of black women. Because it's a case of black women should know your place. The ang mm -hmm. And that's why they're accused of being angry. You know, calm down. And she's speaking up for herself. And she's, she's quite witty. She, she's, she's quite savvy. She knows what to do. And I think, you know, what we're seeing here is you know, the, 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 when you see any kind of intersectionality here, disability, race, class, you know, the, there is a certain group of people get angry about them. They, do, they don't like them in there. But come, yeah. we've moved on now. We're much, yeah, society's much more complex. Do you, do you remember Janet Street Pauper back in the old days? Oh. So what's, what's, I mean, she was on TV for like years and years. She's still around even now. And she's spoken a certain way. And that was 20 years ago. So why is an issue in 2021, especially after 2020, George Floyd, et cetera, to yeah. have either your name slagged off or not being able to pronounce or to have your accent critiqued by Digby Jones, whoever it is. Crazy. Five in the eye. Story number four this week. We're heading off to the glamping site. Now, I mean, Michael will recognise this because he's a regular traveller on the road. 
uh, likes to to go out in his his camper van, park himself up, probably visits many of these kind of glamping sites and has the time of his life. But there's been a bit of a hullabaloo recently because one of these one of these sites was um, deemed by visitors to be not up to the standards that had been advertised. You know, they were expecting great entertainment in the evening and apparently it was a little bit of bingo and someone singing a sorry little song. Um, they 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 were expecting kind of very posh facilities, and they were sharing a a basin with a dozen other people, and they were they were shelling out huge sums of money. Um, I mean, I'm tempted to say, is there one born every minute? You know, uh, should they have looked into it a little bit more before they parked up there? I can say that story because I'm thinking, what kind of person is going to pay two grand a night? to glab to stay in a field in the tent and uh, and kind of quote unquote slum it. I'm like if you pay paid two grand a night, you deserve that that kind of um, experience. Because what you're gonna oh, I, I find it bizarre and I find it laughable because as a person who's done a whole bunch of camping, I've slept under bus shelters or on bus shelters or whatever. I've slept in toilets. I've slept and I would be, I would not pay two grand to do that. So I, I just find it hilarious. People have got too much money. But Tony, some of these some and I've I've been on the road and I've seen some of these these glamps like some of them are really nice. Really nice, and but then they should have read the small print because I saw the pictures there of the the communal washing areas, the communal toilets. They were it was luxury. in the, the communal, right? Yeah, they were luxury. Though, there. To, to me, you know, to one who's been used to be on the road, they were luxury, mate. To me, you know, uh. I guess they had certain standards and expectations, so they should have read the small print. So I've got no sympathy whatsoever. But but having said that, I've been on some of these. I've not been on them. I've seen some of these glam glamping sites are really wonderful with great views and you almost get tailor served butler service breakfast served and all that nonsense i mean isn't there something a little bit odd about people who want to go camping but they don't really want the camping experience at all. I mean, I remember uh, when my kids, my, my, my kids going to festivals and, and I was booking places, you, you, you could like pay for them to use the posh toilets. If you, if you spent another 25 quid on the ticket or something, there was some posh toilet facility that wasn't as bad as the usual. Toilet. But surely you either want the festival experience or you don't, you either like going to a camp, you like going camping and roughing it, or you don't. So you could go to a hotel, couldn't you? I guess might as well have done for two grand. I mean, yeah, could have done. But part of it is the great outdoors, the big horizons. You know, that's that's what you're paying for, and then with a bit of, with a bit of luxury thrown in. And I, well, I'm going to say I feel for them a little bit because they did have an expectation, you know, because and, and it didn't happen. But you know, I hope that it didn't deter them from getting out to the outdoors because there's nothing like. You know, a barbecue in the middle of a field at night to see the stars mm. with a nice glass of wine and a and a burger. Five, five in the eye. We're going to finish the show this week. Story number five, which for me, I think is a fabulous story. They're going to make. I thought this was a sphere that was going to sit above Stratford. Okay, it's not that dramatic. It's actually going to sit on the ground. It's going to be taller than the um the Big Ben. A huge sphere. It's going to be. Uh, a cinema, it's going to be a concert hall, it's going to be a meeting place. And the whole the whole sphere is a projection screen. And it, it, the videos they showed, okay, maybe hype, we don't know, but it looked fantastic. Well, this sphere can change colour. I'm just imagining of the Stratford highlight, highlight skyline, 
This thing morphing from orange to blue to yellow as it glows, as the music inside changes and you're inside seeing different things happening on the screen and on the stage. It sounds fantastic. It sounds like, now maybe I'll guess I've, I've drunk the Kool-Aid. I'm, I'm into it. But I love, we did a bit of a visionary thing to get us through this pandemic. You know, Phil, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be with me on this. We do need something big to look, for, to look forward to. Yeah, I mean, we talked uh, we talked last week about the mound in Marble Arch, didn't we? And we we agreed that that perhaps wasn't the most inspirational of uh, of tourist attractions. Whereas this new thing in Stratford really does sound like the kind of thing that um, would be well worth visiting, but also something that you'd see from a long way away because of its size. It would be an attractive feature of the London skyline. So I think it's got a, it's got a hell of a lot going for it. I mean, Stratford's an area, of course, that did benefit a lot from the 2012 Olympics, which uh, Michael, you were, you were heavily involved in as a, as a games maker and, 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 you know, Newham, Newham as a whole uh, did see quite a lot of investment at, at that point, but it's time, I think, to step it up a gear in the 2020s. Be really good for that part of London. I think, what, what do you reckon, Tony? I'm a bit suspicious of this enormous globe. Brain of mine, who the back is there? Some Americans who have a, Similar thing in um, Las Vegas. And when I think of Stratford, I'm reminded of the gentrification which took place after, well, before 2012, uh, in that a lot of poor working class black people got shifted out there and never came back. And now you have a whole bunch of luxury flats there that were never there before. So, of course, we want to have development. We're going to have art, art and culture museums, which is some of which is happening in the Stratford area. But it seems to be always at the price of you know your working class black uh, Asian population. And Newham is a borough that's, I think it's like 40%. 50% black and Asian. So what happens when that globe now lands in Stratford? Where does that population go? Do they get pushed down to Essex? Because that's what's been happening for the last 10 years since the Olympics came to town. Tony, you make a great point there. But in terms of that, that whole side, that whole side of London, it's great. It brings it up. It has, you know, look, look at Westfield now. Come on. It's huge. Yeah, look at Westfield now. Who who shops in Westfield and what does Westfield sell? No, 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 they no, compare no, to the no, market that was there before. No, back in the, saying, you, no, you shop in Tony, it's probably, it's probably, I, I shop over the road. I shop Tony, over the road. You probably hit on one of Michael's favourite shopping excursions there. You know, no, you could have no, hit a raw nerve. No, I'm, I'm shopping over the road in the old, the old shopping centre. With yeah. the Littles and Sainsbury's. I, I leave you to go, I leave, Tony, I leave you to go to the Apples and the Marks and Spencers. Well, that's what I'm saying. You go to Westfield, you get a kind of sterile, multi-chain experience. But whereas you go to the original shopping centre, as it was before the Olympics came down there, you but get so, your chicken, you get your Black History Bookshop, you get your, your exactly, hair in there. But, but Tony, it's over the road. It hasn't gone away. I would say it has, especially but, but, but in the Tony, old shopping centre. Tony, but when, you go to the, when you go to the Westfield, it's so, come on, you've got all sorts of people. You've got the, the world and his wife in there. I understand your point, Tony, but then you could look at an area like Elephant and Castle, for instance, oh in, Lo in London, where the, the exact opposite has happened. People have been desperate to regenerate that area for years and years and years, and it's dragged on and on and on and on. And, um, you know, people have never seen anything change, never seen anything. It's only very, very recently that anything new has happened isn't there an element of excitement about new stuff coming if I remember in? quickly the elephant castle that project is owned by a guy called mr ripblatt who lives in the virgin Islands, sorry who is tax registered in the virgin islands and that's another massive kind of um gentrification project in that the people who were living there um have not got properties have actually been kicked out to essex and other places and it has who, who who's moved in there now is a bunch of millionaires and very well-off people that's literally what's happened 
the council seats got knocked down, people got moved out, and then you're in their place. Now you have a people have a bunch of people with a lot of money and a million pounds for a studio flat, which is not what the area needed in the first place. Tony, I, 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 I sense we should do that. You should come back on the show. We should discuss the no problem. And... I, I have a walk in Elfman Castle, so I know this story very well. We discuss development in London. I think it's a, it's a big point, a good big big point. But look, so I want to, I want to, I want to move on now and say, well, that's it for another week. Five in the eye. That's two weeks in a row we've discussed tourist attraction in London, and you could say that's become. Part of our sphere. Do you see? Do you get that? Fantastic writing there from uh, our, our resident writer, Phil. So, so look, Tony. Thank you so much for joining this week, and I'm looking forward to having you back on the show to discuss development. My pleasure. Thanks for having in, me. Development in London. If you're interested in the stories we might be discussing next week, do check out our Facebook page over the next seven days as we post up the contenders for you to take a look. Uh, for now, in London, this is Phil Woodford saying goodbye. And this is Tony Warner wishing you all the very best for the weekend. And this is me, Michael O'Hara, saying, as always, if you have been, thanks for listening. That's five in the eye, zero three one seven, done and dusted, over and out. Goodbye. Five in the eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new?